We're going to begin by reading from Matthew chapter 18. It'll be on the screen, but if you have a device and you'd rather follow along and underline and so on, you can do that. Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant? just as I had mercy on you. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for this beautiful day that many of us got to enjoy. And right now, uh, we just come before you as we've already had a time to enter into worship. We've already had time to pray and both give you praise and to ask different requests, and we've been able to give. And, and in this moment, we, we just pray you'd give to us by speaking through your word and through me, God, that it wouldn't be my voice, but God, that you'd be speaking to our hearts today. You'd be challenging us. You'd be encouraging us. You'd be leading us closer to you and to each other. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series called Five Words That Can Change Your Life. Uh, The first week we had Nick Graham. It was so good to have him with us, and he spoke on yes. Last week, Pastor Jamie spoke on no. And if you missed either of those messages, I would encourage you for both of them to go back online and check them out for yourself. This week, sorry. Sorry? How do you say it? You say tomato, I say tomato. Is that? I, I say sorry but it's sorry. You guys good? And what do I mean by sorry? I'll I'll try my best. I mean this three-part statement. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. So we need to test this out together. The application is going to be so quick we can go home early tonight, but repeat after me. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. 
that actually, I could charge you guys like 500 bucks each for marital counseling, like just general relational. Like, this is, this is good. I could be rich. We could all go home happy. It's all good. But those, those uh, three statements, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's kind of the context of what we're looking at for this week. Our words are powerful, aren't they? Uh, in the context, not just of tonight, but of the general series, we're going to look just for a moment into James chapter 3. He spoke about this and in the context of controlling the tongue. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 3, Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in his mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. So we see in, in verse 2, just to highlight, that it says, if we can control our tongues... That, that could be an entire series, if we could control our tongues. And he, he finishes the statement by saying, we would be perfect and could control ourselves in every other way. And then verses 3 through 5, you'll notice how James compares and contrasts between large and small things. In verse 3, it's large, the horse, right, and a small bit. And what's implied there is that there's a rider, right? Large horse, small bit. Verse 4 huge ship, and then a small rudder. And you, it's implied, he says pilot. I, I don't know where pilot comes from. Wouldn't you say captain? Uh, just difference of opinion there. Sorry, James. And then in verse 5, grand speech, and then small tongue. That's, that's us. We give direction to that. And then finally, a great forest fire and a tiny spark. So controlling the tongue, our tongue can lead us to forgiveness, or our tongue can cause us to need forgiveness. The message paraphrase James uh, 5 through 6 this way, it only takes a, smart, a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. And in the English Standard Version, he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So our words are driven by the strong wind, but guided by a small rudder. And sometimes we need a course correction if you think about that ship and the rudder. Even though the winds are strong, that small rudder can steer a huge ship. Let's go back to Matthew 18 right now. And earlier this week, we actually looked at this in youth group. We're in a, a three-week series called Sorry Not Sorry. And in this case, this past week, we, we spoke exactly on this passage, Matthew 18, the unforgiving debtor. And so let, let's go back through uh, a few of the verses here. Where it started was in verse 21, and Peter's asking this question that kind of kicks it off, and he asks, how often 
Uh, how many times? You know, how often should I forgive someone? And he's being specific about a brother or a sister, someone, someone close or someone within the faith community. But in this case, he, he comes up with a number. And I don't know if it's random or not. Seven times. To him, did it sound complete? There's something about the number seven. But when it comes to Jesus' response, he says, no, not seven. And he gets that he's trying to be complete in that answer. But he says, no, 70 times seven. And there's tons that we could go into there. But what, what, where the meat of it is, is this parable that he shares next, starting in verse 23. The king, or later you'll hear master, and depending on the version or translation, you'll hear either interchange king or master. But in general, the, this person is settling his accounts with those who had borrowed from him. And in the next verse, verse 24, it says that one debtor owed him millions of dollars. And you know, sometimes when we're reading in our Bible, we'll see a little footnote or some sort of asterisk or something and we'll look and we can follow that little trail. I often do that. And in this, it says that in Greek, it would be 10,000 talents. I don't know what that is, but in parentheses, it's about 340 metric tons of silver. So that, that's a lot. I don't think I could put that in a truck, right? And uh, verse 25, we understand that he couldn't pay it. So in order to pay the debt, the master was going to have the debtor and his whole family sold. Pretty crazy for our context today, although this is something that actually could still happen in many parts of the world, sadly. In this exact situation, this, this seemed kind of normal. So whether it's right or wrong, it, it's kind of in the context of where we're reading. Verse 26, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. So just picture that, just picture the humility. He realizes he doesn't have this, but he's, he's making both a request and a promise in this. And in verse 27, the master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave him the debt. And I asked this of our, of our, you know, of our youth group on Wednesday night, like, did he owe millions? Like, yes, he did. And, and like, should he have paid it back to this master? Well, yeah, technically. And so the guy just, what, what, just cancels it? The money just doesn't exist anymore? You know, someone should have had to pay for this. But in this, what's happening is the master is showing mercy. He released him. He forgave this debt worth millions. That's the first half of the story, and I wish it ended there. But as we read earlier, it doesn't end all nice and happy because of verse 28. The rest of it is this. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. So think about that. This one guy, on, on one hand, he's, he's owed millions, yet he's forgiven. Now he's demanding a few thousand repaid instantly. Doesn't seem like he learned anything from the first experience. I know some translators, I, I was, I was kind of curious about this, like uh, about if, if there's a, any particular meaning in the two types of, of worth, the, the one amount, the large, large amount, and then the smaller amount. Is there any significance there? And some translators, some commentaries show that the first debtor, it's, it's close to a lifetime of debt. Does that make sense? So for now, you can kind of just picture in, in these terms, it's, it's so much. It, it's too much for the, for the guy to really be able to 
um, to pay back. Even though he said he would, it's just too much. Whereas the second one, it's more like a day's worth of debt or a day or two. In, in some, there'll be a footnote saying it's about a, a day's wages. So think about that for a second, like a career worth or a day's worth. Do, do you see the significance there in this? And so if you think about this statement, we talked about this at youth of how I'm okay with how unfair forgiveness is when I'm the one being forgiven, right? Have you been in someone's shoes like that where you're thinking like, oh yeah, I love that it's unfair when I'm the one to benefit, but it's hard when it's someone else that needs it. One author said, when we are in the wrong, we are all about the grace, but when it's the other person who's wrong, justice seems so godly, so biblical, and divine. Do you ever feel like that? Verses 29 and 30 says, his fellow servant fell down before him. Sound familiar to earlier in the story? And he begged him for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. And think about it. He probably only needed a day or two to be able to pay this back. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. And just think about that. How do, you, how do you earn anything while you're in prison to be able to pay that debt? It just doesn't make sense. But in this context, what, what we need to know is what he should have learned is that forgiven people are supposed to forgive. That's why we're irritated while we're listening to this story. We see the, the full context of this now, and we're thinking, like, he shouldn't have acted this way because he was forgiven. He should have forgave this other guy. Because don't miss this. Forgiven people forgive. At least they're supposed to. We continue in verse 31. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you... Have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. The master had been unfairly good to this first servant, but the servant didn't learn from the master's example. The servant was forgiven a great amount. The master demonstrated mercy and forgiveness when he took pity and canceled the debt. But the servant didn't learn from this experience. The king asked him, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have mercy on you? And this is really the answer to Peter's question from earlier. How often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Well, Jesus' answer is, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have mercy on you? This is what we learned on, on Wednesday night at youth is that not only is forgiven the right thing to do, it's the right thing for you. Why? Because forgiven people forgive. It sets both people free. I love in the message how it says, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked you for mercy? 
I like the word compelled in this context because I was thinking of the James language from earlier, from chapter 3, the whole driven by strong winds. The winds are inevitable. You will be compelled one way or the other. But how will you steer? Or better yet, how will we allow the Holy Spirit to steer? And what I mean is, when we forgive, when we forgive someone, I believe that we're actually exercising the fruit of the Spirit. And what does the fruit of the Spirit produce as it's mentioned in Galatians? Well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The master modeled this forgiveness, and we've received it too. Now we allow the Holy Spirit to shape us by producing the fruit of the Spirit. Forgiveness is evidence of the fruit in our lives. It shows, it demonstrates what is happening inside of us or what has already happened. So when we learn from that, we're a forgiven person who forgives. Does that make sense? The application will depend on the situation, and I thought about this a lot this week. Sometimes it's difficult. It's not really difficult to, to preach three separate times, but it's difficult to be the one person like learning throughout the week and studying it and then wondering how God's going to challenge me and then try to figure out how do I preach it to individuals in various different um, places in, in this kind of continuum. I don't think it's uh, an easy thing. It might be different if I was sitting down to coffee with each person individually. So I, I get that the situation might differ, and it will, but the bottom line is that our hearts need to be changed as a result of the mercy we have received from God. Only then can we extend mercy in the form of forgiveness to others. We're going to go to Matthew, but a different chapter. We're going to go just for a moment into chapter 5. Jesus says, So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come off your sacrifice to God. I want to hone in just for a moment on a few words out of verse 23. You suddenly remember. Have you ever been there? You suddenly remember? Could it be guilt? Would you put that word on it? Is it the Holy Spirit that helps us suddenly remember? I thought about this a lot this week. And in recent weeks, as I've counseled different, different people, sometimes what comes up is the confusion between condemnation and conviction. And so I thought this would be valuable for us. It seems like an aside, but I think it directly impacts because we're dealing with something, not, not that I'm teaching, but that God's teaching all of us. And there is a difference. I think that condemnation means the verdict is in and it reads guilty as charged, right? There's a punishment on the way. But conviction means something is wrong, but it focuses on the reconciliation, making things right. So you can feel guilty, but it doesn't have to be permanent. As one author put it, conviction is like a pain signal that leads us away from danger. Condemnation is like an anesthetic that leaves us feeling numb. So I made kind of two lists, and under condemnation, I was thinking about the difference, as, as you can consider this. Condemnation is really, it's from our accuser. 
It's often vague, bad feelings. Shame is involved, a desire to cover it up. There's no hope. It robs us of joy. As someone else said, condemnation doesn't point us to Christ and the gospel. Rather, it keeps us pointing us back to ourselves and our sin. But on the other hand, conviction is thanks to the Holy Spirit. It's very clear and specific. You can tell that God wants the best for you. It moves us to repentance, a a turning back towards God. It's hopeful. It leads us back to joy. Someone made this equation where conviction plus a godly guilt plus repentance equals joy and worship. Think about that. Conviction, it's one thing to feel it, but then it's, it's the godly grief, the one that, that turns us towards God, not back towards ourselves, but then that leads us to joy and worship. In Proverbs 14.9, it says, Fools make fun of guilt, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. And Jesus said, go and be reconciled. When you suddenly remember, go and be reconciled to that person. Then come offer your sacrifice to God. I was thinking about different occasions where I've been in this position. And I thought back to to one from nearly 20 years ago. I grew up with my grandparents. uh, And the reason for that is because my parents split before I can remember. And my father moved out back back out west, and my mom had to go to school um, to start a new career, you know, to support us and and so on, and growing up with my grandparents was great, um, but it didn't make up for the hurt and the loss from not having my father in the picture, and you can imagine this was especially frustrating because of the financial toll it took on the family and the limitations it created for us, and especially difficult in my teenage years. You can imagine anger, hurt, and all the other emotions that were holding me back at the time. But when I received Christ, I remember clearly the feeling of being forgiven. And the first thing on my mind after I felt renewal, after I felt clarity, after I felt both called into ministry and and called to proclaim uh, the gospel, I, I felt like this weight was lifted off my shoulders. Something was clear right away that I needed to forgive my father. Now, it, it had nothing to do with him either deserving it or even asking for it, as we've heard in, in this previous story. But I, I believed at the time it was just simply out of obedience to Christ, what, what he had modeled to me. But it would also be for my benefit, the, the need to, to let go. And it was difficult because I didn't know how to find him. But, but as I prayed that week and had some of my close friends encourage me and, and pray with me as I was dealing with this, it, it wasn't easy, but I did. I forgave him in my heart. And I prayed that I'd be able to find him. So I shared this with some close friends and youth leaders. And that October, I received my first ever birthday card from my father. And it included his address and his phone number. And that was clearly an answer to prayer. So that that was huge. Imagine that. I was uh, turning 17. I was in grade 12. And I was already thinking about going at the time. It was called Bethany Bible College. So so that that was a huge confirmation. It was encouraging. Uh, But I have to be honest, we weren't able to be reconciled because I delayed for different reasons. I I delayed the contact, and he died before I was able to send the response. And I don't say that for it to be sad, but I, I, I say it because my lesson was don't waste an opportunity to be reconciled, if if at all possible. And I realize there are some 
um, circumstances that we don't need to get into where sometimes it's beyond the context, I think, of what we're talking about today, but I, I think there are some times that maybe it's not possible, maybe in this case physically it's just not, not possible, but, but I felt like I was, I was obedient in the forgiveness, but I wasn't able to do the reconciliation. But we are supposed to remember to forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that's what led me to the whole thing in the first place. And as we read from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, it says, To make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Verse 13 makes it clear, saying, make allowance. And I was thinking, you know, does this mean be reasonable? be fair, or maybe unfair to their advantage. It definitely means to, to forgive, sure, sometimes maybe on the lighter things, and to remember the Lord forgave you and remember how much he forgave us, and he modeled this forgiveness. Um, and so we, we can forgive because we've already had this greater debt to forgive, so, so do it. A uh, couple verses from Proverbs, one in in. 17 verse 9, it says, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. And it's not easy, is it? In, in the next chapter of Proverbs, 18 verse 19, it says, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. You ever feel like that? Let's look, it'll be on the screen, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment, verses 14 and, and 15. I think this can apply to us as a community, not just as individuals. It says, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will, will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. The way the message puts it in verse 15, it says, keep a sharp eye out for weeds of bitter discontent. A thistle or two gone to seed can ruin a whole garden in no time. This puts an end to gossip, preventing more hurt, all the rest. I remember back... In November, we did a series that was all on the Lord's Prayer called Verbatim. And many of us, without even seeing it on a screen, without even looking at the text, could probably recite, maybe in our own version, whatever we've memorized, but most of us could probably recite the Lord's Prayer. But there's this important part of it, and I'm reading just briefly out of Matthew 6. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. That's challenging. If that's our real prayer, that means that we're actively forgiving other people. If we're a forgiven person who forgives, right? Later, Jesus followed the prayer explaining that if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. So as we wrap up, the bottom line is that forgiven people forgive. We've learned this, that when forgiven people forgive, it actually sets both of us free. Our words are powerful, and saying sorry can have a huge impact. 
So sometimes we need to just say, sorry. As we practiced earlier in the message, it's a three statement kind of phrase. I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It almost sounds too simple, but the forgiveness we've kind of chatted about tonight is God to us when maybe we've said sorry to return to God and, and God forgives us, right? The other is us to them that whether they say sorry or not, we forgive others. And then finally them to us, maybe we need to say sorry and then have someone else forgive us. But I want to remind you that God forgives us. And maybe you're here tonight and you need to be forgiven. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you need reconciliation with your heavenly father. Similar to the lost son, I considered this as a course correction in his life when you can read it in Luke for yourself later. It says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have more food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his father. Did you hear when he finally came to his senses? He's essentially trying to say in his own way, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. He needed that reconciliation as we need reconciliation. Those verses 17 through 19 that I read were the course correction, him turning himself back around. And verse 20 is when the ship turned for home. Even though the winds are strong, his father was ready to welcome him home. And it says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. So be forgiven. Forgive others. The father's arms are open wide.